I miss the music. I miss the song. Since she's not with me, it comes out wrong. It doesn't matter how hard I try. I've lost the music. I don't know why. You may have known before I met her, I wrote alone. But if you ask me what I'd prefer, I'd say the music I wrote with her. Hello and welcome to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway for Sunday, July 25th, 2021. My name is James Marino, and in the broadcast today, we have Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier. Peter is a playwright, journalist, and historian with a number of books. His columns appear at Masterworks Broadway, Broadway Select, and many other places. Hello, Peter. Hi. Hello. Also with us is Michael Portantier. Michael is a theater reviewer and essayist. He's the founder and editor of castalbumreviews.com. He's also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You can see his photography work at followspotphoto.com. Hello, Michael. Hello. And Michael, you're joining us from the Jersey Shore this weekend, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Are you uh, seeing the real wives of the Jersey Shore? Is that what you're doing? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I'm trying to stay on the other part of the boardwalk. Okay. Well, you could turn that into a musical, you know. Please, don't give anyone any ideas. <laughs> <laughs> so with us, we have a very special guest joining us. Jason Danieli is with us. Broadway fans know Jason from his many Broadway credits, from Chicago to Candide to The Full Monty to Curtains to Next to Normal to The Visit to Pretty Women, the musical. Jason, thank you for getting up on a Sunday morning and chatting with us. Oh, my goodness. Well, thank you. It's so great to to speak with you guys virtually, at least. It feels like Uh, a very, very long time since I've seen your faces. (laughs) Soon enough, we're going to see faces back. In fact, it's a good possibility you'll see some of our faces on August 1st and 2nd at 7 Mm p.m. down at Feinstein's 54 Below, where you're going to uh, have your new show called Reflections. So tell us about Reflections and what it is. Well, um, I actually, before the pandemic, have been reflecting a lot about uh, my life. Um, I know you guys are familiar with the journey that I've been on over the last six years with uh, mm, my yeah. wife, Erin, um, and her um, journey with ovarian cancer. Um, so at first, I, I was putting together a show reflecting on that and a little bit uh, over the pandemic, you know, we're trying to keep it light. Um, <laughs> it's been a, a difficult journey, but um as of May, uh, the, the show that I was working on took a very bright uh, turn, and I'm now reflecting on new love in my life, um, which is very helpful for a cabaret. Yeah. People <laughs> to include um, songs that aren't all reflecting on the sadness of my life. So it's um, it does kind of span um, a little bit about uh, the journey that Marin and I were on, and um, very briefly, and then moving on to the new loves of my life, uh, my schnorky, uh, <laughs> which is a schnauzer Yorkie mix uh, called King. And then uh, my, my <laughs> girlfriend, Andrea, and, uh, and our life together. So that's kind of it in a nutshell. But um, I'm really excited about it because, as you know, I've, I've done many concerts and many cabarets. And 
we always tried to make them very personal and, and using the Great American Songbook um, to illustrate and articulate what we're feeling because um, so much of the uh, the catalog of the Great American Songbook is um, specific enough, but also open to interpretation. As as you know, so many singers, Sam Davis Jr., um, uh, everybody that has touched this uh, can personalize it. And so using it to reflect on my life right now, hopefully people will hear songs in a manner that they've never heard them before. I have to ask the obvious question here, which is, uh, where in the Great American Songbook do we have a schnorky? And what are you <laughs> singing for the schnorky? Who wrote it? Of the Gershwins, actually. Of course. Of course it was the Gershwins. Right? I mean, Ira can rhyme or at least uh, sort of half-mutilate a word to sound like schnorky. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe I'll be taking liberties. I don't know. Well, I mean, the, the, the Venn diagram between um, uh, Broadway Twitter and Broadway uh, dogs uh, is very, very, very big, <laughs> almost all-encompassing. Uh, That's right. So uh, you've established yourself as a dog person. So, um, so and the Upper West Side dog people, they are they're a true force. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> That's a force that I try to uh, avoid in the park. They can be you know, just as obsessive as they are with their actual children. Maybe that's, <laughs> that's what they're refocusing um, because I don't have a child. He gets all the love that a child of mine would, would get. Are you more Riverside Park or are you more Central Park? Well, you know, I used to live on West 97th, right on Riverside. So oh. right there in by the uh, the Dinosaur Park in mm-hmm. environs. But now I live... Um, uh, right, looking over Lincoln Center, West 66. So I, I can go either way. I'm, uh-huh. I'm a biparkle. <laughs> did any, did any of the three of you see that whole thing of where they let the goats loose in the in Riverside Park? Yeah, yeah. I know they, what you're talking about. They, no. they let the goats to eat some vegetation that was uh, overtaking the park. <laughs> anyway, this is not a vegetation podcast. No, uh, no, so no. we want to talk more about uh, Jason and. Uh, you talked about the Great American Songbook, but what are we? Uh, are, do you want to give us a, pr- a preview, or you want to be a surprise of what what type of songs we're, uh, what, what titles of songs we're going to hear? Yeah, I'll you know I'll leave some of it to um, to surprise because I think that's a, a large um, portion of what the show is. It's like, mm-hmm. what could he possibly fit into this uh, position? Um, but I do um, have probably you know as a uh, a cabaret artist, you tend to want to go back to some songs, revisit them because they they change their meaning over the course of your life and career. Um, so, um, a song that I sang years and years ago, um, the Jerome Kern and Oscar Hammerstein uh, song "All the Things You Are." Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I actually sang for the first time with Doc Severinsen and the Buffalo oh. Pops. Uh, back in like 98 and I haven't really sung it in uh, in public uh, performance until recently. And boy, it's, that's a long time to wait to sing another so- that song again. But um, that's one that's on the, uh, the set list. Cool. Of course, Cole Porter and Hoagie Carmichael are in there. And, um, and then my music director, I have to give him a plug, Joseph Falcon, you know, who plays for Patty Lapone and, you know, Howard McGillan and, and the late beautiful, Rebecca Luker, 
um, he's playing for me again and he's been my music director for years and um, a, a, a very popular cabaret song that people do all the time of his called Time, which is uh, uh, rather melancholy, but a beautiful remembrance of time that is lost. Uh, so that's in there as well. Well, um, in terms of melancholy, um, little did you know when you were singing I Miss the Music, which of course was John Kander's tribute to Fred Ebb, that you would have a situation in your own life where you would be missing the music as well. Yeah. yeah. Do you do that song in the show? I don't do it in this one, no. Uh Um, The show that Marin and I did last at 54, Feinstein's 54 Below, Uh um, was um, called Broadway and Beyond, and we did songs that we introduced on Broadway or mm-hmm. formed in revivals or on PBS. And that was of course included there. So, um, and, and because it, it, it's so on the nose, I thought I'm going to omit it, <laughs> but uh, mm-hmm. you know, it, it I can is appreciate them yeah. at this point. I think we've discussed uh, previously on the podcast that that, that show eventually led to a beautiful recording, live recording that, and everyone can get and everyone should get it's it's really just great thank you yeah so you grew up in st louis did you do stuff at the muni as a child no the irony of ironies the the one big theater in in my hometown um, never hired me (laughs) so you tried you auditioned i you know i auditioned just as i was i think it was my first year in college and they they offered me a uh position as a pit singer because they have Uh so many people on stage they really need people on mic to Uh fill out that giant vast outdoor theater and i i I passed on it in order to actually be on stage at a dinner theater in sunshine uh, called sunshine dinner playhouse in champaign urbana so um yeah um i passed on that and i'm still waiting for the next phone call (laughs) (laughs) they're probably embarrassed by now Yes, they must be. No well, they forgot about me. Who knows? <laughs> did you do any theater in St. Louis while growing up? You know, I did a lot of song and dance. I, I um, see. Yeah, so I worked at uh, Six Flags uh, starting oh. at the age of 15 in the Barbershop Quartet, oh. which is uh, a really good way to learn how to really focus on your audience because there's nothing between you and the, the breastfeeding mother at the line of the log flume. You know, you've got to give your entire <laughs> focus to this audience. And then I did two years of uh, Miss Kitties at Six Flags. And then and then I moved in a showboat um, a dinner theater uh, down on the levee right by the arch. And then I sang with the uh, St. Louis Symphony Chorus. I was the youngest member of the chorus and got to sing under some great conductors. So I, I got a spance of uh, work uh, singing and dancing um, and it's not too far away from what I do as a cabaret artist. Um, who were some of the Who were some of the great conductors you got to sing under? Um, so Raymond Lepard, I'm remembering, was one of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, Thomas Peck, who was the music director uh-huh. sure. of the the chorus, was also the founder of the Grant Park Symphony Chorus. So it it started my um, career working with some really great people. Um, uh, Robert Shaw, a wonderful uh, choral master, who um, years later, uh, I got to sing with the, um, what are they called? They're called the Master Voices now. Um, oh, right. Yes. Collegiate Chorale. Yes. yes. Collegiate Chorale. That's right. Yeah. Robert uh, Shaw uh, uh, 
founded that. And so all these years later, I started in the Mikado and uh, Song of Norway at Carnegie Hall as, as the principal vocalist. Mm. Yeah. Wow. Um, now, the real uh, place where we first discovered you for all intents and purposes here in New York was Floyd Collins. Mm. Um, now, the musical Floyd Cl Collins, of course, was written by Richard Rogers' grandson, but it's not particularly Richard Rogers' music. Did you take to it right away? I did. It, it really spoke to my roots, um, being from St. Louis, um, mm -hmm. and not to throw my, well, it, it, my family had a band uh, growing up, my grandma and grandpa and uncles, and everyone got together. And that's kind of how I heard uh, American popular music for the first time mm. uh, on a stride piano and a washtub bass and a banjo. Uh -huh. um, so that that kind of Americana back porch uh, sound. I wouldn't, I wouldn't say bluegrass, but that's, that's more of the influence of what Adam brought to Floyd Collins, this homespun uh, Americana. And then the difficulty uh, of the, the music um, spoke to my classical uh, vocal, you know, studies growing up and, and singing classical repertoire and, and opera stuff. So it was a perfect hybrid for me. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. um, did you think the show was going to uh, be as successful as it turned out? I thought it was going to be more successful. I uh -huh. just, and I, you know, that whole cast and creative team are still, we're still very close. Oh, that's nice. Family. And um, it, it fell in, as I know you guys know very well, uh, during a time where uh, Jonathan Larson passed away during um, mm -hmm. previews of Rent. And then, of course, it became the huge hit that it was. And Savion Glover had Bring Into Noise, Bring Into Funk, mm -hmm. in mm -hmm. public, and it moved. So not that there wouldn't have been room for us, but it wasn't, it felt like a kind of a crowded, um, uh, I don't know, lane of heading to Broadway. I, I was hoping mm. that it moved Broadway, but, you know, it, it, in a strange turn of events, I think it became even bigger and as a cult hit. I mean, people talked mm -hmm. to me today. That's a good point. Oh, yeah. Collins. <laughs> <laughs> so the Full Monty, um, the, when it was in San Diego, did you have more confidence that that would um, move to Broadway? Yeah, that that's just felt right up the alley commercial success, but with Terrence uh, McNally's book and David Yazbek's score and Jack O'Brien directing, you know, not getting too cocky about it it felt like wow uh, artistically uh satisfying but then has the earmark of a commercial success so uh, and that of course had its own strange trajectory up against the producers mm, <laughs> yeah Mm. Yes, let me say this. I've worked the Tony Room many, many years, and the only time these jaded journalists ever went, oh, was when the best score announcement was made, because we all assumed David Yazbek was going to win that prize. And when they announced uh, Mel Brooks, really, seriously, whoa, yeah. and that never happens in that room. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I have a question that uh, that you may not want to answer, Jason. I'll, I'll leave it totally up to you. One of your other early successes was Candide, which, of course, was produced by Garth Drabinsky. <laughs> and then a lot of stuff happened with him after that. And now I guess he's back to a certain extent. I thought maybe you might want to um, talk about that. If you Did you have any idea that there might be something wrong uh, when you were in the show? Or were you completely separated from that? 
you're speaking of Garth's uh, uh, financial dalliances. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't suspect anything at the time um, I, because Marin and I were both embraced by Garth. Um, we had both done a tour of music of the night and um, at different times. And then um, we were, you know, I guess sort of in a corral that he seemed to be uh, grooming for long haul. I, we were, I was, you know, excited about that potential, but um, yeah, I, I found, later found out he didn't pay my social security for the years that I worked for him. Wow. Yeah. And, wow. and that wasn't the only one. There were several people, but um, it puts a, bad taste in your mouth. Um, but I also, at the same time, I know creative people, um, that we all know and admire that worked with, with him, uh, regularly that almost could look the other way at that because they felt that his creative, um, acumen as a producer was what had been lacking so much in producers on Broadway. And, um, I, that's what I, it's it's a real um, bittersweet, you know. He's he's very creative and, and gave us "Kiss of the Spider Woman" and and some really oh. parade and other things. Oh, Fosse, yeah, yeah. and mm-hmm. we might Show not have up. had those otherwise. But then again, you know, when I want to collect my social security, it's going to be a little light. <laughs> no, uh, ironically, one does hear this about Garth Drabinsky, uh, the same thing. Everybody you talk to says, what a great producer, but, you know, so that's uh, that's very much the case, you know. But when you talk about a bad taste in your mouth, I remember Marin telling me about a good taste, and that was the fact that uh, you were doing a Greek play together, and uh, there was a point where you had to kiss, and she made it very apparent that she was kissing you not as an actress, but as Marin. <laughs> does this sound yeah. familiar? I think that's no, what she told me. Yeah, that was um, Charles Mee uh, Jr., the playwright. We were doing uh, The Trojan Women, A Love Story. Uh-huh. <laughs> this was right after Floyd Collins. And uh, Tina Landau was directing that as well, uh, mm-hmm. as the show that she wrote, Floyd. And, um, yeah, the the woman I was playing opposite in Act 2 that played Dido, Queen of Carthage, um, it wasn't quite working for, for Chuck and for Tina, so they – let her go. And Marin stepped into the role with only 24 hours. Wow. And she, cause she had photographic memory. It wasn't too difficult, strangely enough. Um, and then, yeah, we got to the point for the kiss and uh, she said, she just took, took advantage of the opportunity and gave me a, and planted one on me. And, and I was supposed to jump up and, and rattle off a, you know, breakneck pace monologue and uh, I stood up and the light shifted. This was during rehearsal. And I just completely went out. So, uh, yeah, she, she had the desired effect. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, another musical that I feel has been overlooked is, is Curtains. Mm, um, I agree. And, and you've, you've been through the, the Curtains process. Uh, how long were you involved with that and bringing it to Broadway? Uh, tell us more about curtains and your experience. Yeah, I, um, a lot of musicals I've been uh, part of from the very first reading all the way up, and that's how a lot of times it works. Uh, this one, um, they hadn't found the the actor that they wanted for the, my role, and it wasn't fully f- fleshed out either. And uh, so I got on board for the out of town tryout in Los Angeles, um, and since I knew everybody on the creative team. Um, it was to my benefit because uh, Kander hadn't written a song for my character yet. And, 
and Scott Ellis was pushing him and, and he wrote, I miss the music with me uh, and Marin in mind. Uh, he, when we did it in LA it was, wasn't as, as it is now, the bridge wasn't written. And um, David Loud, our conductor um, mm. played it for me in his studio and we both had tears in our eyes because mm-hmm. of Peter, it, it sounded, you know, very clear, clearly mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. it was an homage to his mm-hmm. life, uh, life with Fred. And then I told John that and he, he demurred. He's like, oh, no, I didn't write that about Freddie. It's, it's, it's about the characters, of course, Georgia and Aaron. But um, I thought about what would it be like if you and Marin no longer uh, were partners or, and no longer performed together. Uh, and then he said, now, now that I know what it's about, he went back and wrote The Bridge, which is a, a direct homage and even has little um, musical quotes from Cabaret in there. Um, so the song specifically resonates on those three different levels, and it's such a gift. But as far as doing curtains, I've, I don't think I've ever had as much fun. Like Deb Monk, Karen Ziemba, Edward Hibbert, you know, Michael X. Martin, Ernie Sabella, David Hyde Pierce. It was just musical theater stalwarts doing a musical about that's a love letter to what we do and the art form that we do. And we laughed our asses off every single show for the whole run. It was just a pure joy to be a part of that. May I say the producer, Roger Berlin, once said to me, look, we knew when the reviews weren't so hot, the curtains wasn't going to be a smash hit. However, there have been so many times where I've had that experience and I've closed shows quickly because so many times people every day would call me and say, this actor's driving me crazy. This actress doesn't behave, et cetera. He said, I kept curtains open. It was making money one week, losing money the next week because that cast just got along so well. I didn't hear any complaints in the morning uh, Mm -hmm. when I came to the office. It was just a case that they got along so, so well. Well, all right, let's keep it going until we really can't keep it going anymore. And that's why 511 performances resulted. So it was a tribute to all of you that you liked each other so much. And uh, that kept it going. Wow, that's great. It's so nice to hear. And, and, you know, Roger Berland and and Roger Horchow um, were a, a a breed unto themselves as producers, gentlemen producers that mm-hmm. had a real heart. And mm-hmm. I miss them both because they were friends. And um, um, yeah, it's hard to find people like that, um, but I know they exist. I don't mean to short shrift my, you know, um, producers that are out there right now because it's just a different time, but what a gentleman. All right. Um, well, speaking of producers, it must have been a thrill to um, have that producer director, Harold Prince, uh, say, yes, I want you in my show. Yeah, that's an understatement. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I was 25 and wow. um, just finished uh, Floyd Collins. And I auditioned for Hal for that and Whistle Down the Wind. And uh-huh. um he wanted me for both and Garth wanted me to do Candide and not get involved with whistle because they thought since it's Andrew Lloyd Webber, it's certain to come in. Um, so he put me on the, the tour of music of the night to just sort of pacify me because it was, a, I think I knew for over a year that I was going to be doing it. <laughs> but when I got the phone call, you know, we didn't have cell phones at the time and um, taking a bathroom break at the Marriott, um, and on that whatever floor it is where the public bathrooms were and the public ninth floor, no longer, <laughs> no, no longer, no longer public bathrooms. No, 
Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, but I, I went, you know, to check my messages because I had a really good audition. I felt good about it. And um, there was a message, you know, hey, kids, Jay, it's uh, Hal Prince. Give me a call. And then I called him and he's <laughs> like, let's do this. I'm like, okay, mm-hmm. let's do it. <laughs> and, uh, you know, uh, that relationship continued and there were other opportunities for me to work with him, just not in, in public, you know, readings and, and workshops and stuff like that. And uh, yeah, dream come true. I'd like to ask about Carousel. Uh, you played Mr. Snow twice. Yeah. Uh, the first time at Carnegie Hall with Hugh Jackman and Audra McDonald. <laughs> And then the second time it was what was then Avery Fisher Hall with Kelly O'Hara and uh, Nathan Gunn. Uh, so I, I mean, it was so great. Both the concerts were so wonderful. And also it was very exciting because I think you were a different sort of Mr. Snow maybe than we had seen before, maybe, you know, younger and more attractive. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take it. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, um Talk about those experiences a little bit. Yeah, the first carousel um, was very unique. And I, I got to sing under the baton of Leonard Slatkin, who was uh, world famous for conducting mm-hmm. my hometown symphony for many, many years. And so to to be able to sing with him was a, a great honor. And the musicality, uh, I've, I've been blessed to work with so many great conductors. But when someone looms so largely in your mind from your childhood, you get the you know, he's giving you the downbeat. He's not giving it to somebody else. It, it meant so much. And um, and to work with Hugh, who had only the first X-Men film um, under his belt, and he had the beard for the second one, I think. And <laughs> and I had the tenacity to say, this is going to be really good for you, Hugh. Everyone in the Broadway community is going to get to know you. And, and I bet you'll be starring on Broadway, you know, because he hadn't done anything on Broadway yet. And and then, of course, you can never get a ticket when he's starring in a show. Um, but it, it was a great experience. And, and Lauren Ward was my carry in that one. Um, and I love the entrance for that show. I remember it because um, Walter Bobby was uh, directing it. And he's like, do you think you can fill Carnegie Hall with your voice? I said, sure. I didn't have any question so my first entrance was from the back of the orchestra without a microphone on i was like oh that this is fun this is real old school right mm. so it was it was fun to to be challenged in that way but then when we did it when i did it with uh, the new york philharmonic yeah it was a, a much more staged and um a more i feel like when when a show is staged like that and you're completely off book and uh, choreographed you it's almost like you get to do the role without having to put in two years of your life right <laughs> you right. get artistic fulfillment of singing those songs and um and having those moments without having to schlep to the theater eight times a week uh, which is a, i'm very happy to do that but um kind of the best of both worlds <laughs> So one of our uh listeners is uh Anthony uh, Tony Janicki has uh points out that he saw you in Chicago Shake Sunday in the Park with George. Uh so let's talk about some of your regional experiences starting off with Sunday in the Park. Uh you know, uh, had you been able to play that role before or was that your first time? That was my first time. Uh my only time and um it came as a complete surprise. I was doing a concert with the Grant Park Symphony. And Gary Griffin was directing. It was a all uh, 
Frank Lesser evening. And I sang um, Never Will I Marry from Green oh. Willow. Oh, from Green Willow. And he saw me sing that. And I think it just struck a, a chord. And I'm sure you guys are familiar with the song. And it's it's very rich and dense and 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 deep and he came up to me after that he said do you want to play george i said yes he's like (laughs) let's let's do it and so that was my audition singing a concert um but it, it was a lifelong dream and it couldn't have been a more perfect production that production could have transferred to broadway so easily the 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 talent in Chicago, as you know, is is very. It's a very deep pool, even though it's maybe not as big a pool as as New York. And so, I, I was very happy to be able to be brought in, uh, and they welcomed me with open arms, which can't is not always the case. You know, someone coming in and taking their their roles, their show, their their jobs, um, but to be able to dig deep into that that character, George Surratt. And and I know a lot of people have mixed opinions about act two, but I think what James and Steve have to say speaks to us in such a profound way through act two. We, we get to see ourselves reflected in the contemporary um, setting of that show. And it really just grabs you by the throat. Um, at least it does for me. So it, what a, what a great, and then Carmen Cusack was my dot. And uh, oh wow, she I only knew her because she was in Carrie, uh, the musical with Marin. And uh, I was like, okay, let's see what this lady has. And then she just kept giving it and giving it and giving. I was like, oh, right, well, this is this is more than I expected. So it was great. Uh, what other uh major regional uh theaters have you worked at that you'd like to give a shout out to? What type of productions did you do there? Um, you know, one that jumps out is uh, the signature in DC in, mm, yeah. in Shirlington, Virginia, actually. And um, Michael John Lacusa uh, wrote a musical called The Highest Yellow about another artist, Vincent van Gogh. And um, I thought, oh, yeah, Vincent van Gogh m- musical. I want to play Vincent. And then you have two ears. Well, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> and I said, um, I'd love to play Vincent. And they're like, no, we were thinking about you for the doctor. Dr. Felix Ray is what the musical sort of uh, centers around. And if you're familiar with his portraits at all, there's a portrait of Felix Ray, who is the physician who took care of him right after he cut off his ear. And, um, and there's a sort of a love triangle between a, a prostitute, uh, which was fictionalized, and, and then his sort of imagined relationship with Vincent. And that was uh, Mark Kudish played Vincent and Judy Kuhn played the prostitute. Um, but Eric uh, Schaefer directed it. And it was one of those um, experiences where you're building the show from the ground up and it's really rich and fulfilling. And then I was um, honored with uh, a Helen Hayes award for that performance. So that always kind of caps an experience off nicely. <laughs> yeah, that's really wonderful. So, Jason, I want to really thank you for joining us on Broadway Radio. We have uh, we're, the opportunity to, to see you at Feinstein's 54 Below on August 1st and August 2nd at 7 p.m. We'll have a link in the show notes to how to get tickets to that. And uh, everybody get ready to see some reflections. Thank you so much. Thank you.
Off-Broadway Radio is being brought to you today by Upstart. Off-Broadway is already back, and Broadway will be back in just a matter of weeks. Tickets are on sale for all the must-see shows, Town, Passover, and Waitress, but you are carrying high credit card balances and you feel like you're in a never-ending cycle of debt. Upstart can help you regain your footing and get things back on track. Upstart is the fast and easy way to pay off your debt with a personal loan all online. Whether it's paying off credit cards, consolidating high-interest debt, or funding personal expenses, over half a million people have used Upstart to get one fixed monthly payment. Unlike other lenders, Upstart considers your income and current employment to find you a smarter rate for your loan. With a five-minute online rate check, you can see your rate upfront for loans between $1,000 to $50,000. You can receive funds as fast as one business day after accepting your loan. Find out how Upstart can lower your monthly payments today when you go to upstart.com slash broadway. That's upstart, U-P-S-T-A-R-T, dot com slash broadway. Don't forget to use our URL to let them know that we sent you. Loan amounts will be determined based upon your credit, income, and certain other information provided in your loan application. Go to upstart.com slash broadway. We'd like to thank Upstart for continuing to support Broadway Radio. Okay, Peter. So you got uh, to a theater to see <laughs> one and the only, the always hysterical Jackie Hoffman in <laughs> Fruma's Sarah waiting in the wings. So tell us about this, uh, this performance. Well, of course, yes, Jackie Hoffman is extraordinarily funny, but this play actually gives her a chance to be poignant as well. And she does that extraordinarily well. Um, so um, the, the concept is here she is in a community theater in uh, New Jersey, and she is playing for Masera and Fiddler on the Roof, which means it's going to take a while before she gets on stage because um, she doesn't get on stage until Tevye's dream. And a lot has happened uh, by that point in time. So as a result, she's going to spend a good deal of time talking to the stage manager who um, doesn't really, really, really want to talk to her, mostly because she doesn't feel as professional. She's got a job to do and she doesn't want to be distracted. But um, Jackie Hoffman's character is so winning and um, so engaging that uh, she can't help being drawn into uh, the conversation with her. But we do find out that um, it's not only that she's been uh, Jackie Hoffman's character has been disappointed in her career. She's been disappointed in her life too. And again, here's a situation where we see Jackie Hoffman in a way that we haven't seen her before. At least I haven't, perhaps she's done roles that I've missed. Uh, I dare say she has, but nevertheless, here she is really showing that she can be a fine actress when it comes to being serious as well. It's funny. <laughs> uh, she won a theater world award um, some years back. Well, for hairspray, in fact, and, um, and some years ago, she um, she got a gift bag when she presented and she posted on Facebook uh, the, the gift bag from the Theater World one said, this is the closest I'll ever get to a Tony Award uh, gift bag. <laughs> well, uh, I'm not sure of that. And uh, should this play move to Broadway? Um, indeed, um, <laughs> she'd certainly be a contender and um, she would get a gift bag at the very least. That said, I wish the play were funnier when it wants to be funnier. I don't think it's nearly as funny as it thinks it is. Um, and that would really help. But I'm telling you, not only is Jackie Hoffman wonderful, but Kelly Kinsella, 
is giving the type of performance that I truly, truly love best, which means she doesn't seem like she's acting at all. She seems like a regular person or a genuine stage manager. She doesn't overemphasize words. She doesn't uh, put it on thick. No, she's a real person. And that's the type of thing you really want as a foil in this play, certainly, but also because that's real life. And it's a good, um, really, it's a master class in acting for a lot of people who um, are, are, let me put it this way. I remember a, um, a, a teacher at Fairleigh Dickinson University saying to me, when high school students get to us, we have to erase everything they ever did in high school. And um, I know what that means. That really is the fact that so many um, kids act and um, you have to get them away from acting into being real people. And well, this is um, uh, one of the best examples I can think of in, in many, many seasons, Kelly Kinsella in Frumacera. So don't just go for Jackie. Uh, you will be pleased to see Jackie in a new light. You will be pleased to see her getting every laugh that um, the play wants her to get. But also go for Kelly Kinsella. Peter, I have a question. It sounds like um, th- th- there's no room in this show for her to re- refer to the fact that she would go on to play Kenta in that fabulous uh, Folkstina production, Yiddish production of Fiddler. Well, ironically enough, uh, there is some talk about playing Golda, but of course, uh, there's no reference to the uh, wonderful um, Yiddish language production that was so successful. But um, but it's, there is some um, sort of dramatic irony that uh, we have, those of us who know that uh, she was in th- uh, that show and played Yenta, because there is a reference to uh, playing Yenta, but um, not specifically for that production, of course. Okay, thanks. So, Peter, unfortunately... If you're listening to this, you can't see this show it because closed? it is sold out. Oh, all right. Good. It uh, is sold out through the end of its run. Maybe they'll re-extend uh, the run, or maybe they'll put it up somewhere else or something like that. I so, don't believe we've heard the loss of this show, especially yeah. if it's this successful. You know, granted, we're not talking about a very large theater, but nevertheless, you know, the fact that uh, it has sold all the tickets is quite impressive. Oh, I'm so glad you told me that. I really thought you were going to say it closed uh, today, you know, but... Uh, well, it today is the... Uh, July 25th is the last uh, public performance that's on their website, uh, but... Every performance has been sold out so far. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, and today's performance, the 25th at 4 p.m., is sold out already. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah. By the way, the theater is called the Cell Theater. It's on the 23rd Cell. Street, uh, C-E-L-L. And, uh, but they're selling tickets at the Cell. Okay, that's good. <laughs> hmm So, uh, Michael. Yes. Um, we had an announcement this week that the uh, Kennedy Center, or... Ken Sen, as uh, people sometimes will refer to it as, uh, has announced their honorees for this year, and uh, you wanted to talk a little bit about that. Yes, it's very exciting. They're kind of, uh, uh, you know, I guess, well, not doubling up, but, you know, it doesn't seem like very long ago at all that we just saw the the ceremony for the the last uh, set, but that, that set was delayed, that set of people honorees was delayed because of COVID. So now uh, uh, the new set has been announced, and it is uh, Joni Mitchell, Barry Gordy, Bette Midler, Lauren Michaels, and Justino Diaz, uh, which, you know, I, I think we would all agree that all those people are, are certainly deserving. Uh, Bette Midler obviously rings a really loud bell with, 
with many of our listeners for her amazing career. And uh, I was uh, very gratified to see Justino Diaz on the list because he really uh, was one of the great opera singers of his day. I I was lucky enough to hear him live more than once and um, recently enjoyed what he had to say as a talking head in that fabulous documentary called The Opera House that came out a couple of years ago about the um, the switch from the old Metropolitan Opera House on 39th Street and Broadway to the current one uh, at Lincoln Center and the, uh, you know, the the demolition of the old house and the uh, the demolition of an entire neighborhood on uh, you know in the West sixties uh, and fifties uh, in order to build Lincoln Center, which resulted in the displacement of a tremendous number of people. And this apparently this is going to be the background of um, a, a background of the new West Side Story movie. Um, they're using that whole. That whole subplot uh, to give context to the new West Side Story film uh, by Steven Spielberg. So I'm interested in seeing that. Uh, but yeah, Justino Diaz was in the uh, first, the very first production at the new Met Opera House in 1966, which was Samuel Barber's Antony and Cleopatra. And his co-stars in it were Leontine Price, still very much alive, uh, and Rosalind Elias, who uh, only recently is East and who many of our listeners know from her appearance in Follies on Broadway and, and, a, and a few other shows in addition to her great operatic career. So um, Justino Diaz is was a really great artist, uh, still, still very happily with us. And I was very happy to see his name on the list. And I also learned something that I did not know until two days ago. Justino Diaz is the father of Natasha Diaz, who is a really wonderful performer. I've been lucky enough to see in several great roles, including Anita in West Side Story. And she was Fosca in the really excellent, really excellent production of uh, Sondheim's Passion that I saw at Signature Theater down in the D.C. area a, f- a few years ago. So um, that, that was uh, something that was uh, such a sweet, nice little surprise for me. Did either of you know that they were related? No. No, yeah. I did not. Yeah. <laughs> so that, you know, amazing what you can find out on the Internet. <laughs> Isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> well, is it true? <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, yeah, so the Kennedy Center honorees, um, it's the 44th uh, Kennedy Center honorees. Do you know when the actual uh, uh, date is going to be? Not sure. We can look that up as well. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, uh, again, uh, I, I try to draw draw these lines all back to Broadway. Each one of these people has a pretty strong connection to Broadway. Mm Mm-hmm. So if sure. you want to be a Kennedy Center honoree, That's focus it. on Broadway. There you are. <laughs> QED. <laughs> so it says they're going to be uh, presented in December, but they don't have a... Um, oh, December 5th. Ah, okay. And then doesn't it usually air in January? Isn't that usually the... Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think so. Yeah. So, uh, all right. So there's our Q 
Kennedy Center uh, honorees wrap-up there. Peter, you got um, to one of the parks in New York City. I don't know if you told me which one it was, but you saw two noble kinsmen. So tell us about this. Well, um, this is a collaboration between <clears throat> Shakespeare and John Fletcher, uh, done late in life. Um, and um, it's rarely, rarely, rarely done. But um, here, the drilling company, uh, which likes to have its summer shows called Shakespeare in the Parking Lot. And that's mm-hmm. what they do. They do them in the parking lot, and they're going to do it next weekend um, at 107 Suffolk Street, not far from the F train. Um, by all means, uh, go. Not just because it's uh, rarely done, but it's done so wonderfully here. A terrific production, just charming. Um, if indeed this is not a major Shakespeare play, Nobody told these people who are doing it. Uh, they are doing it with such passion, such verve, such a wonderful sense of comedy that uh, that you can't help but being won over. It's about, it's about 90 minutes, maybe a little longer. No intermission and um, outdoors and on a pleasant night. Um, you'll have a pleasant time. I really want to call out uh, Bradford Forrest, who plays uh, one of the young lovers. Um, <clears throat> the play deals with uh, there are two plays that come to mind from Shakespeare when you see this show. Um, one is Two Gentlemen of Verona, because here you have uh, Palamon and our site. Um, they're cousins actually here, more than just two gentlemen. And um, because of uh, a, a war, they wind up in prison. And there's a wonderful type of Shakespearean banter going on here. Uh, maybe it was John Fletcher, but it feels like Shakespeare when they rationalize why being in prison is really such a great thing. I mean, it, it, this is the place to be, you know, um, n- nothing to worry about. Um, sort of the same type of thing um, you hear in Come With Me and the Boys from Syracuse. Well, anyway, but then they look out the window and they see this beautiful girl. And hmm. suddenly, you know, <laughs> being in prison ain't no fun no more. So, so, um, so that, and they do get a chance to escape. And that's where Midsummer Night's Dream analogy comes in because you have somebody very much like Helena who's very much in love with um, the uh, one of, uh, well, in fact, with uh, Palamon. And he doesn't want to give her the time of day any more than you have. Um, in Midsummer Night's Dream. So as a result, uh, you have those things at play. But um, the two guys playing um, the the two would-be lovers, Bradford Frost and John Caliendo, are so terrific. Um, And some may complain that uh, Jane Bradley, who plays the jailer's daughter, is a little over the top, but it's very much in keeping with what's going on here. And by the way, when I say jailer's daughter, you might say, well, what's her name? They never told us. She is simply known as jailer's daughter. I'd love to know the reasoning behind that. Uh, why can't she have a name? I mean, <laughs> is she such an unending? I mean, even Helena has a name in Midsummer. So um, I'd love to know the story behind that. But that'll send me to, uh, to Google to find out at some point. But in the meantime, don't you waste time Googling. Get down, if you're in the city, get down to 107 Suffolk Street and make sure you see the two noble kinsmen because uh, of its rarity and because it's done so well. Really, my hat is off, especially uh, to the director, Hamilton Clancy, who, um, again, had <laughs> takes it on as if this is, a, this is a major play. And as a result, it's a major production. It does look like, uh, oh, no, that was uh, last week. It was at Bryant Park last right, week. Right, that's where I saw it. Yeah, yeah. but, ne- but and they, the next week it's in right. uh, Suffolk Street. 
Right. Um, Great. But it, uh, I think next week is closing weekend. So um, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, I think is when it is. And the productions are free. Yeah. Do, do accept donations. Yeah. How can you go wrong? Yeah. How can you go wrong with that? All right. So that uh, wraps it up for this morning. Before we get on to uh, trivia and our musical moment, I want to remind everybody that you can subscribe to these broadcasts by going to the front page of BroadwayRadio.com. There's a subscribe link. That way, each and every time we have a new episode of This Week on Broadway, it'll be automatically downloaded to Apple Podcasts for you. Of course, you don't have to listen to us on Apple Podcasts. There's many ways to get to us. iHeartRadio, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google Play, anywhere that you can listen to finer podcasts, You'll find Broadway Radio's offerings. Also, um, uh, I forgot to ask Jason about this, but um, Jan Simpson has been doing her All the Drama uh, series focusing on uh, Pulitzer Prize-winning uh, plays and musicals. And this uh, this uh, last weekend was uh, actually yesterday's um, podcast was about South Pacific, and she talked about Jason's performance in South Pacific and that special concert that he did. What a great title for a podcast, All the Drama. All the Drama. Uh, Jan Simpson. Oh, yes. Yeah. love oh, her. Yeah. She's just the best. Yeah. She's uh, just we, the best. We just put her on the uh, nominating committee for the Theatre World Awards. So uh, oh, I'm, great. Very, I'm very glad to have her. Did you know that she was – she's part of the Pulitzer Prize. I, I want to say part of the nominating committee or review committee for oh, the yeah. Pulitzer Prize. Oh, then she's yeah. perfect for this uh, situation, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so uh, All the Drama is such a great podcast. Uh, please check it out. And she talked with uh, Ted Chapin, at, uh, formerly of Roger and Hammerstein. That's so mm. odd to say, formerly mm. of Roger yeah. and Hammerstein. Yeah. But uh, talk to Ted about South Pacific and uh, lots of information there. So check that out. Anyway, back to this week on Broadway. Uh, if you want to get in contact with Peter and Michael and me, you can find our contact information in the show notes at broadwayradio.com, as well as links to some of the things we've talked about today. So, Peter, do you have an answer to last week's trivia? Pippin and Applause, two musicals from the 70s, almost, almost had something in common with two Tony-nominated Best Musical Losers from the late 60s. What's the commonality? Well, let's first identify the two Tony-losing musicals from 66-67. There was I Do, I Do. And from 68-69, there was Promises, Promises. Notice that each had a word repeated in its title. Mm. And when a Pippin and Applause were just starting out, they were known as Pippin Pippin and Applause Applause. (laughs) For the former, that's what Stephen Schwartz called his college musical some years before it got to Broadway. For the latter, Applause Applause was actually the name on the three sheet I saw in the lobby of the now raised Mechanic Theater in Baltimore when I saw Plaza Suite there on New Year's Eve 1969. So uh, they were announced it was coming, but there it was, Applause Applause. Jack Leshner was the first to get it, followed by Tony Janicki, although he initially made more wrong guesses than Merrily We Roll Along had performances. And he got it, only I gave him more hints than Les Mis had performances. (laughs) And that was it. Okay, this week's question. Cole Porter, in one of his hits, made a rhyme that purposely had his character mispronounce a word when singing the title of an Oscar-winning film. But to be fair, Porter wasn't just making a rhyme. The mispronunciation had become an idiom over the years, and theatergoers had undoubtedly heard it before they saw Porter's show or heard the cast album. And the name of that Oscar-winning film is... Okay. If you have an answer, email us at trivia 
at broadwayradio.com. We'll let you know if you're on the right track. So, Michael, so much to pick from with Jason. What's our musical moment this week? Yeah, uh, I, we thought we would open the podcast with the, ch- the song that we discussed earlier, I Miss the Music from Curtains, which uh, just to be 100% clear, uh, I think Jason alluded to this without actually stating it, it uh, that song has both music and lyrics by John Kander, because of course right. uh, Fred right. had, had already passed. And I, I think that's so wonderful that he um, turned out to be able to write beautiful lyrics as well mm-hmm. as his great, mm-hmm. great music. Mm-hmm. And Jason's performance of it is absolutely beautiful. This is the performance, not from the cast album, but from that live recording that we mentioned earlier from the show Broadway and Beyond that Jason and Marin Maisie did at 54 Below. And now to end the podcast with our musical moment, we will uh, offer another song that, that we also discussed, which is the beautiful David Yazbek song, You Walk With Me, mm. from... Uh, the full Monty. And that uh, song is very beautiful in itself, but also I think uh, to see it in context is really something because what they had to do was show us uh, that two of these guys, uh, you know, these working class guys who decided to put on a strip show really just out of desperation to get some money for themselves. I think we're supposed to, you know, just assume pretty much that all of them are straight Uh and but then it turns out that one of them is falling in love. Uh, well, two of them are falling in love with each other, mm-hmm. and um, this had to be shown in in a way in the musical that was not exploitative or, or didn't seem, uh, you know, off in some way or another. Uh, and the way that uh, Terence McNally and David Yazbek brilliantly did it was to have. Uh, Jason's character of Malcolm sing this song at his mother's funeral. Uh, it's a beautiful, beautiful song. And uh, sort of hard way to it, uh, the, the fellow that he's in love with starts singing it with him. And it's so moving that uh, that even the other guys, all these other macho, you know, hard, hard bitten guys uh, who are there at the, at the funeral, they, they're, they're touched by it rather than freaked out in any way mm-hmm. and so i think that was a really really brilliant way to handle that moment and the song itself is so lovely uh, as you'll hear if you didn't already know it um so that is our musical moment for this week all right so on behalf of michael portantier and peter felicia this is james marino saying thanks so much for listening to broadway radios this week on broadway Bye-bye. Bye. In the valley, never alone for you walk with me. When evening falls and the air gets colder, when shadows cover the road I am following, will I be alone? darkness No, not alone Not alone and I'll never be Never alone You are walking You're walking with me Is it 
me. Mm-hmm.